By way of introduction to, uh, to our text this morning, I'll tell you about a friend of mine uh, who started a church. Um, he, st- he started a church, brand new, uh, just poured his life into this thing, ministering to, uh, to a group of people. And, and when you start a church, it is full on its adventure of faith. You're, you're just stepping out, uh, and you're, you're asking the Lord to, to meet you and to guide you and to direct you. Uh, and, and typically, when you start a new, a new church, it's a, it's a humble effort. There's, there's not a lot of people. There's not a lot of money. There's not a lot of resources. Uh, and, and certainly that was the case with my friend. So as he started this church, um, he had to work full time. Uh, he had to take his own money to invest in a lot of the infrastructure that they had to have, uh, seating and, and you know, the, just the money to make the copies of the bulletins and all of those things. And, and so a lot of it was, was coming out of his pocket just to, to get going. He's working on his own, and, and uh, he's, he's independently employed. He's got his own business, and, and actually he was fairly successful with his own business, so much so that he got to the place where he decided that he could sell his business, and he did, and he, he made quite a profit on the sale of his business. So he sat down with his elders of this new church, and he says, listen, guys, um, you know, I, I sold my business. I got, I got some change here, uh, some money. He says, you know, I'm going to, uh, I'm thinking about taking this money and investing it in the church. What do you guys think? I invest it in the church, and then, you know, I can come on salary at the church because the church will now have money in the bank to be able to pay me a modest salary, and it puts the church in a position where, you know, they're, they're sustained. And these elders readily agreed, yeah, that's a great idea. And no sooner had he done this than these elders got together and decided, you're out. They fired him. And they kept the money. And you're like, that stinks, man. That is, that is, that's just horrible. You know, sadly, these kinds of stories are nothing new. I hear them all the time. I just heard another story last week, very similar story. I'm like, that's horrible. Now, I tell you this story by way of introduction um, because this is exactly Paul's situation here dealing with this Corinthian church. And Jesus warned that it would be this way. He said, remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they'll also persecute you. If they kept my word, they'll keep yours also. Now, here's the sad statistics of pastoral ministry. Just, you know, I'll share some statistics and then I'll go out and get counseling and you guys can pray for me. Every year, 1,500 pastors quit the ministry. Uh, Some of them quit because of sin, uh, usually sexual in nature, but the vast majority quit the ministry because they're burned out and because they've been through a horrible experience within the church of infighting and, and so on. Um, and, uh, and it just from the pressures of ministry and this pressure that these pastors are under, it shows up in all of these other statistics as well. Statistically, 50% of all pastors marriages, I was shocked by this end in divorce, 50% of all pastors, according to, to, uh, two national surveys say that 50% of all pastors marriages end in divorce. I'm, I'm shocked. 
Now, by the way, this is why some guys don't teach on sex and marriage and family or money because their life's a train wreck, their life's totally out of control, and they just want to avoid those issues altogether. Um, It's why, in general, the churches have a tendency to be very anemic um, because if the leadership's unhealthy, then the body is going to be unhealthy as well. 80% statistically of pastors and 84% of their spouses feel unqualified for the ministry and discouraged in the ministry. Um, 50% of pastors say they would leave the ministry if they had another way of making a living. 70% of all pastors admit to battling depression. And 80% of pastors' wives think that their husbands are overworked and wish that they would quit and find another line of work. Now, it would be a mistake to attribute all of these sad statistics to the pressures that are heaped on pastors uh, by unrealistic expectations of the people that they serve. But the fact remains that many of these statistics are due precisely to that very fact. Now, let me make it very clear at this point to you guys. This is not some backhanded way for me to complain about my job. I can, I'm, I'm very happy to report to you that I don't fall in... To, I don't identify with any of these guys. I'm so blessed here. I hope and I pray and I beg the Lord that I can stay at Reliance Church for the rest of my life. I love our church. and God's done a great work here. I mean, it is, it's, you know... And, and so I'm, I'm, I'm very happy and content. But I share the statistics with you because here in our text this morning, this is exactly the situation that Paul is dealing with with these Corinthians. He goes into Corinth, a very pagan city. He starts a church. He, he goes, there's absolutely nothing when he gets there. There's no building, no infrastructure, no services. There's not even any Christians Paul comes in, and, and he comes just giving his life to this place, works for free for 18 months, leads 100 or so people to the Lord, pours his life into these guys, disciples them, cares for them, nurtures them, just does everything he can. He builds this church, and rather than loving and appreciating him and honoring him, these ungrateful Corinthians are rebellious and they basically say to him, who are you to tell us what to do? Why should we listen to you? And why should we pay you? This was their response. And it's funny because I put myself in Paul's shoes and and I I just think this way, but I could just imagine Paul's reaction. It's like, you know, who are you to tell us what to do? Why should we listen to you? Why should we pay you? And and I can see Paul going, well, let's see. I, I started the church I worked for free for 18 months. I foot the bill to, like, you know, pay for the chairs you sit in. Uh, let's see. I, I noticed you're studying the Bible. Yeah, I wrote two-thirds of that. I mean, that's got to count for something, you know? And this is how, you know, Paul gets treated by these guys. And, you know, by the way, it wasn't just their attitude towards Paul. These Corinthians, they had this attitude towards all of the servant leaders that came to minister to them. You guys remember when we were back in chapter 1. And, and the Corinthians were saying, some of them, I'm of Cephas. Others were saying, you know, I'm of Apollos. Others were saying, I'm of Paul, right? And, and it reveals this consumer mindset that these Corinthians had, the consumer mindset that says, hey, I'm the customer and you're the proprietor. 
Your job is to wait on me. Your job is to take care of me. Your job is to entertain me. And I'm just here, you know, as a customer. And you know what? The customer is always right. And this was, you know, their attitude. And when a church has this mindset towards their pastor, towards their leaders, well, then basically what happens is that the pastor becomes the whipping boy of the congregation. And the congregation basically says, look, you're here to serve me. You're here to take care of me. And the whole relationship is a one-way kind of relationship. And so when Paul begins chapter 9 here, what he's doing and what we're going to read is, is he's just candidly being brutally honest with these Corinthians about what it's like to be their pastor, okay? So with that set up, we come to chapter 9, and here's what Paul says. He says, am I not an apostle? In other words, what he's saying is, look, I'm not here on a whim. I'm not here because I unilaterally decided that I should come here. I'm, I'm called. I'm an apostle. God called me. He continues. He says, am I not an apostle? He says, uh, am I not free? In other words, look, I'm not your slave. Okay? This, that's not why I'm here. I'm not here because I'm obligated to you in some way. He continues. He says, Has I, have I not seen Jesus Christ, our Lord? Are you not my work in the Lord? In other words, what he's referring to there, you remember on the Damascus Road in in Acts chapter 9, when when Jesus appeared to Paul, knocked him off his horse, and basically said, you're in the army now, buddy. You're mine. You know, and and that was what, you know, that started Paul in his call as an apostle. In fact, Jesus would, would say later on in chapter 9, he, he appears to this guy named uh, Ananias, and he says, I, I want you to go lay hands on Paul, and, uh, and I want you to, to basically commission him for my service. And, and, and Ananias says, um, God, can I tell you about this guy? He's killing Christians. He's a bad dude. I think you're making a mistake. And God says, no, I, I want you to go lay hands on him. I'm going to show him how much he must suffer for my namesake. Uh, and, and so really, that's what Paul's talking about here. He says, have I not seen Jesus Christ our Lord? Are you not my work in the Lord? He's basically saying, look, I w- was called, I was commissioned, and I'm not here. I'm not here on a whim. This is my duty. I have, I have a duty to act, Paul would say. Um, those of you who are in the medical profession, you understand that phrase, duty to act. When I was a paramedic, we, had, we were obligated by a duty to act. Here's how a duty to act works. Um, we would go uh, to the grocery store. You know, you always see the fire engine out in front of the grocery store. You learn, what's going on? They've got to get dinner. They've got to get the stuff, the fixings to make dinner. So when you're in the grocery store, all your gears back out in, in, the, in the truck, in the engine. Well, if somebody drops down right in front of you with a heart attack and they're not breathing, guess who's doing mouth-to-mouth? You. You don't have, you know, it's not like you can go, yuck, somebody ought to do something about that, right? Wait, I got to lip lock that, you know? Yeah, you do, because you ain't got your gear with you. And so that means mouth-to-mouth till somebody else runs out and grabs the gear, and you can come back and, you know, get them on an Ambu bag or whatever, you know, and you can get your mouth off of theirs. You're like, man, I don't want to suck face. Well, then don't be a paramedic, man. 
Because you have a duty to act. See, if the paramedic, if you went down and the paramedic went bummer for you, dude, and walked away, he'd go to jail. You know, I mean, he'd be in trouble. Dereliction of duty. Because he has a duty to act. Now, not everybody in the store does. I mean, the way the law reads, I mean, you, Joe Q. Citizen, some guy drops down in front of you, you could like step over and go, I'm a bummer for you, dude. And legally, you could get away with that. It's crazy, but it's true. But not if you have a duty to act. If you are there as, you know, a civil servant, trained, equipped, and called to do that job, well, then you don't have the luxury of walking away. And this is what Paul's saying here. He's saying, look, I got a duty to act. And, and, and this, by the way, is the, the very first argument that Paul's making. And really, the, the argument is, why should he be paid and why should he be obeyed? This is, this is the idea, because that's what the Corinthians are doing. They're like, who are you? Why should we pay you? Why should we obey you? Why should we listen to you? Paul says, well, for starters, because I'm called. I'm an apostle, called by God. This is my duty. This is my responsibility. He says, he continues in verse 2, he says, uh, if I'm not an apostle to others, yet doubtless I am to you, for you are the seal of of my apostleship in the Lord. Uh, he says, yeah, look, you're the, you're the seal of my, apo- uh, my apostleship. The seal, by the way, in this day and age, if you were to send some contents, you were to send a, a letter maybe, maybe you, know, you, you send something to, to someone, you want, hey, I want to send you some money, you would put it in you know, an, an in a envelope of sorts and you would seal it with wax. And so that when the recipient got it, they would break that seal and they knew that the contents there were were the original contents, that they hadn't been tampered with, that, you know, maybe you sent money and somebody along the way went, oh, money, cool, thanks. And then you got a letter and you thought, oh, gosh, he sent a card, but there was no cash. What a cheapskate, you know? Well, the seal would have been broken and you would have known, hey, the contents have been tampered with. So what, and we get this. I mean, you go down to the store, you get, you know, you buy something at the store, you, you open it up, you're like, oh, that seal's been broken. I ain't eating that, you know, because who knows what's been put in there, right? It's the same thing. And so what Paul is saying to these guys, he's, he says, look, you are my seal. I'll illustrate this point. Yesterday, I had the great honor to officiate uh, a wedding service, and it was a renewal of vows. And the couple that renewed their vows uh, had had some um, had had some profound issues that had come up in their marriage. And what has happened in their life, what's transpired in their life, and they sharing their testimony with the family and friends that they had had gathered there, was that God met them, reached them, worked through them, transformed them, and now they're re-entering into this marriage covenant, making these vows, saying, that was then, but this is now, and things have changed. Well, part of their making this, this, this or sharing their testimony, included just the transformation that has happened to them through this ministry, and through specific individuals that are a part of the church here at Reliance Church. And I would say in the same way, that's my seal. That is is my seal of authenticity to say, you know what, this is a sovereign work of God. God is doing a sovereign work here in and through the lives of the people at Reliance Church. 
And so just as Paul would say to these Corinthians, hey, you're my seal, I would say to you guys and all the testimonies that come out and the fruit that God is producing here at this church, I say, that's my seal. This is, this is the, the evidence that God's Spirit dwells amongst us and is doing this sovereign work. And so this is what Paul says to these guys. He says, uh, you're, you're my seal. It, it, it's... it's <clears throat> This incredible work that Paul does where, you know, he says, look, you're saved. He's talking to these Corinthians. You're born again. You're in fellowship with one another. You're in a church that I planted with my own two hands. And that's proof of my apostleship that he would say to them. I led you to Christ. I baptized you. I I drug you out of rehab. You know, I ministered to you. And, and you are now my seal. And now, he, Paul would say to them, now in light of all that, you're going to turn on me? In light of all that, you're going to attack me? In light of all that, you're not, you're, you're not going to, to, to pay me? You're going to deny my, my right to earn my living? In do, I've given my life to this. And, and, and you're the proof. Your lives are, are, are pr- the proof of that. Paul continues in verse 3 and he says, My defense to those who examine me is this. Do we have no right to eat and drink? Do we have no right to take along a believing wife, as do also the other apostles, the brothers of the Lord, and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working? He says that obviously sarcastically. And he cites here three examples. He says, you know, his question is, why is it okay for other apostles to do this, but it's not okay for me to do this? And, and in citing the three examples, the three examples he cites are the other apostles, the number two, the brothers of the Lord, and number three, Cephas. Now, um, the brothers of the Lord, just interestingly, and just kind of as an aside, I was raised in the Catholic Church, and of course the Catholic Church teaches uh, that, uh, that Mary was a perpetual virgin, uh, and um, that, you know, she was... Uh, she, she had Jesus uh, through immaculate conception, which is true, but that for then on out, she was a perpetual virgin. She had no other kids, and, and that's just simply not true. Uh, the book of James is written by James, the half-brother of Jesus. Um, and so when, the, when Paul refers to them, he says, uh, do we not have the right to take along a believing wife as do the other apostles? And as also do the brothers of the Lord, he's he's saying, look, not only did Jesus have brothers, but another thing the Catholic Church taught me was that, you know, hey, if if you're called to serve the Lord as a priest, then you can't be married. Well... I got a couple of problems here because number one, he says these other apostles are married and then he, he cites Cephas. Cephas is Peter. And Catholic Church says, well, he's the first pope. Well, the first pope was married. Peter was married. says so right here. So, you know, there, there's this, this example that we have there that, you know, this, this is indeed the case. And, and of course, the bigger picture here that what, uh, what Paul's making is, look, the first argument as to why I should reasonably expect that I should be paid and obeyed is because I'm an apostle called by God. He says my second argument as to why I should be paid and obeyed uh, is this. He says um, that there is <clears throat> this existing principle within the work 
that pain workers is a normal part of life. That's what he says. Look, pain workers, it's a, it's a normal part of life. And again, he gives three examples. Uh, he, he says in verse 7, uh, whoever goes to war at his own expense, who plants a vineyard and does not eat of its fruit, or who tends a flock and does not drink of the milk of the flock. So he gives these three practical examples, a soldier, a farmer, and a shepherd. Now, we just had, you know, Cody Peru and, and John Spangler come back from Afghanistan. And, uh, and here this December before Christmas, Barrett Dilly's getting ready to deploy back out to Afghanistan. And how crazy would it be if we said to these guys, hey, um, could you pay for your ticket to get over there? By the way, hey, could you, you know, a 50, I just found this out, 50 caliber machine gun, $8 a round. Uh, can, you, can you pay for, uh, for the ammo for these guns? Can you, can, you, uh, can you write us a check for that, please? Hey, you, you can't take that Kevlar best, man. Put, give me a check. I, I need you to pay for that. Three hots and a cot, man, but you got to pay for it. You know, how crazy would it be if we had these guys pay their way to go fight in the war? Similarly, Paul uses this illustration of, 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 of a farmer, a vineyard owner, you know. Hey, you know, you see the guy, he's out there working all day, and he's hungry, and he picks a thing of grapes, and, and all of a sudden, you know, the fruit inspector jumps out. Ah! You can't eat that, man. The farmer's like, this is mine. I just worked all day. I produced this. I'm having some grapes, thank you very much. Or, you know, the, the guy's out there, he, he's milking the, the, the cow, and uh, he's going to have his cornflakes, and he takes the milk out. No, you can't have that. He's like, I'm pretty sure I can. Because while you were sleeping in your bed, I was out milking this cow. And, and this, is, this is my farm. These are my animals. This is what I'm going to do. These are the practical examples that Paul gives here. And he's like, how crazy is it, you Corinthians, that you're going to have this attitude that, that, you know, the pastor shouldn't get paid for what he does. I mean, we don't apply that in any other areas. We don't make soldiers pay for their stuff. We're not going to make the farmer pay for his stuff. It, it just, it, it's not going to work that way. This is not how we operate. And so he gives these three obvious, exam, obvious examples, and the obvious conclusion is that it's ridiculous to expect the pastor to minister to the, to minister the gospel and make disciples at his own expense, just as it's crazy to expect that the soldier should fight at his own expense or that the farmer or the shepherd should labor at their own expense. Paul continues, verse 8, he says, Do I say these things uh, as a mere man? In other words, not, not only are these practical human reasons, but they're also practical reasons in the law of God. Uh, and that's what he says. He says, do I, do I say these as a mere man, or does not the law of God say the same thing also? Now, he's going to quote from Deuteronomy uh, chapter 25, verse 4, uh, and give an example in the law of God about how it's right and appropriate that the, the man of God should, should be compensated. And so he says in verse 9, For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. 
um, you know, the, the ox there in, in, in this day and age, you would take the grain and you'd throw it out on the fle- threshing floor and the ox would pull around this stone uh, threshing wheel uh, over the top of the grain. It would break the husks. They would then take the mixture. They would throw it up in the air. Now with the grain having been broken down and the husks having been, been broken away from the, the, the seed, then the wind would blow the chaff away, leaving just the seed. And this was, you know, a long process throughout the day. And so what the law of God provided for was, well, don't muzzle the ox. I mean, how unfair it is to make him work all day long and he can't stop and eat. And what does he eat? Well, he eats the fruit of his labor. He eats the grain that he himself has pulled this wheel over to to break down uh, the the husks uh, around the grain. And so this is the principle here. Do not muzzle the ox um, uh, while it treads out the grain. and then, he, and then Paul adds, he says, is it ox, uh, oxen God is concerned about, or does he say it all together for our sakes? He says, for our sakes, no doubt this is written, that he who plows should plow in hope, and he who threshes in hope should be a partaker of his hope. And, and so he continues, he says, if we have sown spiritual things for you, is it a great thing if we reap your material things? If others are partakers of this right over you, are we not even more? Nevertheless, we have not used this right, but endure all things, lest we hinder the gospel of Christ. That's very important. We're going to come back to that, verse 12. But he says, in finishing the thought in verse 13, he says, Do you not know that those who minister the holy things, eat of the things of the temple, and those who serve at the altar partake of the offerings of the altar. Now, here he he cites, he's making reference to another Old Testament law uh, in Leviticus 6, verse 16, where there it's referring to the, the, uh, the grain offering. And here, as the priests make this grain offering, the law provides that they themselves can be partakers of the grain offering. And so, Paul, again, using these two Old Testament examples to to make the point, hey, listen, it's a reasonable thing for me to expect uh, that, uh, that I should be taken care of through my labors, through my efforts. This is, this is reasonable, and the law provides for it. And so again, Paul making these, these uh, points about, you know, why, why biblically, you Corinthians, why should you obey me? Why biblically, you Corinthians, why should you pay me? And, and so he says, number one, because I'm an apostle. He says, number two, because it's normal to pay somebody for an honest day's work. We don't have a problem with this in any other type of work that people do, in any other type of endeavor. But he also says here, number three, because it's according to, to God's, law, to God's law. Again, quotes from Deuteronomy 25. He quotes from Leviticus chapter 6. He makes the point, listen, this is biblical. Providing for your pastors is a biblical concept. Well, Paul's point not only is made in the Old Testament, but he also makes his point from the New Testament. He continues in verse 14, and he says this, He says, even so, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should live from the gospel. And so not only is this borne out in the Old Testament, Paul's making the point, this also is borne out in the New Testament. You say, well, where did Jesus say that? Turn to Luke's gospel, Luke chapter 10. 
And you're like, what's this got to do with me? Just bear with us. Luke chapter 10. Jesus speaking here. He says this, After these things, the Lord appointed 70 others also. After what things? Well, if you read in Matthew's gospel, in Matthew chapter 10, it talks about how the Lord sent out his 12 disciples. And so, uh, so after these things, the Lord appointed 70 others also, and he sent them two by two before his face into every city and place where he himself was about to go. And then he said to them, The harvest truly is great, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go your way. Behold, I send you out as lambs among wolves. Carry neither money bag, knapsack, nor sandals, and greet no one along the road. But whatever house you enter, first say, Peace to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest on it. If not, it will return to you. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking such things as they give. For the laborer, here it is, is worthy of his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whatever city you enter and they receive you, eat such things as are set before you. And heal the sick there and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. But whatever city you enter and they do not receive you, go out into its streets and say, The very dust of your city, which clings to us, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near to you. Now, this is the proof text that we use and the model that we use when it comes to our own church planting here. Um, if, again, if you're new, just so you know, we have two strings on our guitar here at Reliance Church. We make disciples and we plant churches. These are what we give everything to. This is our reason for being. Our reason is to, for being is to cause people to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior and to serve Him with their lives and to discover and use their spiritual gifts in service of the Lord. And then our outreach opportunities are all about planting churches. And we don't care where that is. Just, the Lord, show us where you want to plant churches. With 1,500 churches closing their doors every year in the United States, and actually it's, it's much more than that. It's about 1,500 churches a month that close in the United States. More churches close than open. The churches in America are on the decline. There's an intense need for churches, not just in America, but across the, the world. And so our desire, our calling from the Lord is to plant churches, just as God called Paul to plant churches through the book of Acts. And so what we do is we use Luke chapter 10 as our proof text. What we do is we pray, and the Lord will lay an area on our heart. We get a group of people just praying, just seeking the Lord. We make an announcement to you guys, hey, we're praying about this area. We did this with Bountiful Utah. We said, hey, we're praying about planting a church in Salt Lake City. We don't know where. God's laid that on our heart. We're inviting you guys to pray. We set aside a day of the week. We all get together. We pray. We fervently seek the Lord. And and we just spend time waiting on the Lord. Then, you know, in time, we'll go out. We'll take a trip there. We'll kind of go into the ground. We're, We're sort of getting the lay of the land. We did all of these things. And in accordance with this model that Jesus set in Luke chapter 10, when when we go there, we're looking for that person of peace. We're looking for that local resident who, who says to us, 
Thank God you're here. I've been praying. I've been hoping. I've been seeking. I'm so glad that you're here to plant a church. I want to open my home to you. I want to welcome you in. I want to be a part of this work. And indeed, that's exactly what happened in Bountiful, Utah. We prayed, we went, we looked around, and we're just seeing where God's working, where he's moving. And in the course of time, we meet this guy named Naveen, his wife, Autumn. They live there in Bountiful. They welcome us into their house. They open the door wide. Hey, come on in, man. And, and, and not only that, we, we end up going to dinner with them. We end up praying with them. They share with us, you know, just their heart for this town. 85,000 people in this town. And, uh, you know, there's like three evangelical churches in the whole town. And, and they're like, there's a huge need here, man. And so we pray with them. They invite us back the same week. He buys dinner, you know. Uh, and long story short, and you guys, many of you have heard this, but basically... He says to us, I'm committed to this work. So meanwhile, from our prayer group, we have at least a a couple of couples that are called to go out there. Mike and his wife, Erin, heading up this work. Uh, Nate and Don Busby called to go along with them. They both now living in Bountiful, Utah, having their Bible study. I just went there last week. I preached on Sunday, uh, met with our, our leadership after services on Sunday. My wife and I got in a plane Sunday night. I flew out there. Great stuff happening, and I'll tell you about that in just a minute. But we were there. God's blessing. He's moving. He's working. There's a Bible study. God's pouring out His Spirit. Again, all of this are proof text to, to, to go, hey, this is, this is what needs to happen. Now, hold that thought. Go back to 1 Corinthians Chapter 9, and take a look at verse 12 there. Again, Paul's making the point, look, as a servant of God, it's right and reasonable that you should recognize that we're called by God, we're here serving the Lord, we have a mandate from Him, It's right and appropriate that we should obey those who the Lord has placed in authority over us. It's right and appropriate that we should pay for those that the Lord has called to this position. But Paul says something interesting in verse 12. He says, if others are partakers of this right over you, are we not even more? This is a right. But, he says, nevertheless, we have not used this right, but we endure all things lest we hinder the gospel of Christ. Now, what was going on in Paul's day there was he had gone into Corinth. It was a Gentile population, a Gentile community. And Paul was sensitive to the fact that he would have to make some sacrifices to get the church off the ground. He was sensitive to the fact that these, being a Gentile culture, they're not going to, I mean, they might get the practical considerations of, you know, you, you, you pay the soldier, you pay the farmer, you know, you, you pay the guy that's, that's, that's milking the cow, whatever. They would get that, but, the, but all the implications of, you know, Old Testament law and so on, they're not going to get so much. So, you know, I'm not going to come on too strong about, hey, you guys need to kick in some money to, to get this church started kind of thing. I'm going to be sensitive to that. He also understands it's just a practical consideration when you go where there's nothing, that there's some sacrifices that you have to make, you know, to get things going. Um, you know, the first 18 months here at Reliance Church, very similar thing. We came to where there was nothing, and I lived for 18 months on my severance and on uh, money that I was making working a job at construction. 
Um, wouldn't you know it, my daughters, I have two daughters, it, and uh, both of them now married, but, but when I set out to plant this church, they weren't. Uh, and they both decided, let's wait until dad leaves his job, and then let's get married. And so I'm in the middle of planting a church, living off my severance, and now, my, now i got two weddings to pay for, you know. So, you know, a buddy of mine gives me a job working construction, and I gladly took it, man. And so there I am for 18 months, and, and just living off my severance, working construction, is what I had to do to plant this church. And even after that, even after 18 months where the church had grown up a little bit to where they could start paying me a salary, it still couldn't match the salary that I had had, and so I had to live off my credit cards for a period of time. Um, and, and so there was this season where we had to, to, you know, just to work and to labor because I couldn't reasonably expect the church to be able to support me. And this is the point that Paul is making in verse 12. Now, applying this to what God is, is doing um, in Bountiful is the same thing. This is the season that we're in in Bountiful, Utah, where we've planted this church and there are those there that have partnered with us and are committing to the work and they're, they're tithing to the work. But there's a season where, you know, we need to kind of nurture this thing. It's kind of like, you know, you, when you plant a tree, you sort of have those stakes in alongside that tree just to kind of steer it along and help it along and move it along. This is the role that we're playing now as a, as a planting church, as a sending church with those at, at Reliance Bountiful. Um, hold that thought. I want to finish with that. I'll come back to it. And this is kind of awkward for me because we're talking now about my compensation. And I, I just want to say a few things. Um, let me just acknowledge historically there are abuses. There are abuses of this. There's abuses on both sides. On the one hand, when it comes to paying your pastors, um, there's, there's a prosperity theology where those who, who hold to a prosperity theology, they come out and they say, hey, listen, uh, Jesus wants you to be rich. And, uh, you know, so that's, that's his whole thing. And, and they, you know, twist the scriptures. Jesus was rich. I don't know how you can read foxes have holds, birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head and, and come to the conclusion that Jesus was rich, but, but they do. And so prosperity theology doctrine uh, those types of churches that teach such aberrant theology, they have a tendency to pay their pastors just an, an obscene amount of money. Um, and, uh, and they do something else, which is, which, which is kind of sneaky, in my opinion. What they'll do is you'll see that it's, it's pastors, uh, you know, Ray and Joni, you know, and it's the husband and wife team, and they call them both pastors. They ordain them both as pastors. And frequently what they do is they pay them both. And they pay them both a lot of money. And so, you know, it, and it's just this way that people are, are, are getting rich in the ministry. There are those churches that come on strong. Hey, if you don't send in your money, you know, something bad's going to happen to me. And you don't want that and I don't want that. The ministry needs your money. And they just are milking everything, everyone for every penny that they can get. So there are abuses on, on that side of the coin. Um, just so you know, my wife is not ordained as a pastor and my wife doesn't get paid. All right? Just, just know that. On the other side of the coin, where, gosh, it's quiet in here. 
I feel really awkward. On the other side of the coin, you have, you have prosperity theology, and then what you have, which is equally wrong, is you have poverty theology. And poverty theology says, hey, listen, you know, you can't, you can't overpay uh, pastors, and so they grossly underpay the pastors. And basically, you know, their attitude is, hey, you know, Jesus, he pulled a coin out of a fish's mouth, pastor. Maybe you need to go fishing and get some money you know, kind of thing. I I seem to recall one of the prophets, you know, he was fed by the birds, you know, so maybe you just got to, you know, trust the birds to feed you kind of thing. Both of these are wrong. Um, and, And the balance is, is that if a church is able to pay their pastors, the church should pay their pastors so they can concentrate full time on doing the work of pastoral ministry, teaching the word of God, counseling the people, shepherding the people, guiding the church. And, and so this is, this is, you know, God has blessed our church. We're growing. We're, we're 700 strong now. Thank you, Jesus. And so, you know, we have several pastors who have come on staff and several other staff. And, and I just want you to know, just so you guys coming here, because you're faithful to give your tithe, we don't pass the collection plate. We never have. We never will. We're just going to trust the Lord's going to speak to you and that you're going to give. The offering boxes are in the back. You give us under the Lord. We don't try and milk you for money here. You know, we're, we're, not, we're not poor. Um, yes, every dime that we spend comes from you, and you need to know that. We don't have any other sources of income. Uh, we do just do what God's called us to do. We trust God faithfully to provide for us, and we understand our responsibility to, to just to faithfully give as God has provided for us. And, and so, just so you know, the way that we set salaries here is that I don't get to choose my salary, the other pastors don't get to choose their salary. Our board chooses what our salary is going to be. And what we do is there, there are national surveys that are done, what's reasonable, what's right, what's appropriate that pastors should make. And then we, we take that and we compare it to just our local community because the, the pastor shouldn't be living above the people that he ministers to. And so what you do is you say, okay, what's right and reasonable for this position, for this size church, and also what's right and reasonable for this area? And so that, those are the criteria that the guys who make such decisions, they sit down and they make the decision, and, and then that's the salary that each of, of your pastors are paid. And, and I will just tell you, listen, I, I ain't getting rich here, know that, but, but my bills are paid, I thank you. And, you know, you'll take comfort in the fact, I'm not driving a Bentley. I drive a truck that's, that's 11 years old. It's got a couple hundred thousand miles on it. Some of you are laughing because I drove it into church last week, coasted it in because my blew my radiator. So I come, I come to a stop in the parking lot here, and the steam comes pouring out of this thing. Uh, and it was cool because I was getting on a plane that night, so we just had it towed. They, they fixed my radiator, and that's a lot cheaper. It's an it's a, it's 11-year-old truck, 200,000 miles. I paid $3,500 for it eight years ago, and I love it. I'm, ha- I'm happy. It's cool. My wife drives a 13-year-old car. I paid $6,500 for it. No car payments. Life is good. And my bills are paid. I'm, clearly, I'm not missing too many meals. So um, I thank you. You guys, you guys take care of us. And so, you know, just so you know, that's how it works here. And you're like, good grief. Pastor Ted, what's all this got to do with me? Here's what it's got to do with you. And I, and, and I just have a couple points of application. First of all, we just teach through the Word, and this is what the Word teaches. And so it's important that you have a biblical understanding of how the church is supposed to operate. So know that this is just information for you to be a healthy Christian. 
But a couple of points of application. Number one, in understanding how a healthy church is supposed to operate, well, what is the church? Anybody. What's the church? It's us, right? It's us individually. The Bible says that we as living stones are being built into a holy tabernacle. The church is us. And so for our church to continue to be healthy, every single one of us needs to recognize, I have a part to play in this church. And that means that just as your family operates and just as my family operates, everybody has a responsibility. And we're not going to allow members of the family just to sort of freeload and do whatever they're going to do. No, you've got a responsibility. So every single one of us needs to understand we have a responsibility in how the church operates, a responsibility to serve, a responsibility to give, a responsibility to be just a, a productive member of the family. That's who we are. That's the first point of application. The second point of application, and this is just what I, you know, just give me a few minutes here. As a church planting church, we need to expect and anticipate the opportunities that we're going to have to support other churches for a season. Here's what's going on in Bountiful. We just planted this church. Mike and Aaron have been there on the ground less than three months, two and a half months. Uh, Nate and Don moved there. They've been there maybe a month, maybe a month and a half. They started a Bible study in Mike and Aaron's home. And what we do is we just simply say, okay, you start a Bible study, just invite whoever's going to come, teach the word, pour your life into them, and God will add daily to the church such as should be saved. That's the way it works. And so you don't have to worry about anything else, just do that. So for two and a half months, Mike's been faithfully teaching the word. He opened up his house, started a Bible study. They outgrew his house. And we're like, cool. So now they've moved into Nate and Don's house. They have a little bit bigger assembly room. And so they're, now they're meeting in Nate and Don's house. So we met with them. I had Pastor Eric come down. We planted Eric uh, several years ago in, in Eagle, Colorado. And so I wanted Eric and his wife Kimber to come and to meet with the leadership. Our intent for going out there was to give them some leadership training. And I wanted Eric to be able to tell them, look, here's what it's like to plant a church. Here's some of the mistakes that we made. I wanted Kimber to be able to share. Here's some of the things I expected. Here's when my expectations weren't met. Here's how we dealt with, you know, all these things. So we're training them. And so I come to find out, well, gosh, God's blessing their study. He's growing their study. I said, one of the things I can do for you, because I had nothing to do on the second day during the daytime, because our training was scheduled for night. So I got Nate, and I said, hey, dude, we're going to go tomorrow. Bring your camera, and we're going to look at some facilities around town. I'm going to show you some facilities, and I'm going to show you guys how to look for a facility, because that's where you're headed. You've got to start doing the legwork now. And so we started going around town, around Bountiful, just looking at different buildings. And I'm saying, okay, now you want to you consider where's its positioned. You want to consider the traffic patterns. You want to consider the parking. You want to consider what kind of building are you looking at? What sort of improvements might you have to do? Uh, and, and all that. And so in the course of doing this, we're about two and a half hours into it, I find the building. And, I, and I, I'm like, this is nuts. I get on the phone. I call the agent. His number's there on, on the thing. And I, I said, uh, you know, hey, you know, tell me about the building. He tells me the price. I'm like, you know, now I learned a long time ago. You're like, how much do you want for this sorry building? But inside you're like, oh, gosh, I got to have it, right? So, <laughs> so I'm like, oh, I don't know. So, uh, so I hang up. For, I make the arrangements with him. I hang up. I call Mike. I go, dude, I'm standing in front of your new building. It's amazing. You're going to love it. 
Uh, he's like, yeah, right. I, I said, hey, what are you doing today about 3 o'clock? He goes, I'm open. I go, no, you're not. you got an appointment to meet with the uh, agent down here at 3 o'clock. So he comes down. We go in. We're looking. And we're like, oh, what a piece of junk, you know, to this guy. The guy comes down $500 from his price just in our conversation. Here's bottom line. We made an offer on the building. And I just ask you guys to be praying about this, not to buy it, to lease it. Um, but, but this is where we're at with them. And as we're looking at what's going on, here's the thing. Every, the Bible says, and we talked about this last week, whatever's not of faith is sin. Every time I've brought somebody on staff, we haven't had the money to hire that person. Every time when we signed the lease on, on our current office facility, I mean, Cody and I sitting there, I'm looking at the lease, he's looking at the lease, I go, we don't have enough to pay for this. Cody's like, yeah, I know, sign right there. Okay, you know, so, you know, this, every situation we've been in, but that's the, that's the deal. Okay, so here's where it involves us. As it pertains to, and guys, this is, I'm not being slick. I haven't engineered all this. We'll just go through the, the, the word, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. This is where we're at. We're planting a church in Bountiful, Utah. We are the sending church. They're in a position where, you know, there may be for us, it may become incumbent upon us to help them along to get this thing off the ground. So, so I would ask you, be praying about this lease. I'm hopeful that I can share with you that, the, that we were able to come to terms on the lease. And then what I'm hopeful to tell you is that we're going to organize a, a group to go up there. Almost all the construction is done. So we might build a couple of walls, but we're basically going to go up there and paint. I want to get a group of people together, want to drive up there and do this and have the first church service up there. But I'm also going to be asking you to prayerfully consider, just as a missionary endeavor, would you prayerfully consider, hey, I can support them just over and above what I do to, to be a responsible member of Reliance Temecula, but can I support them like I might, you know, support a missionary? Can I give them, you know, 25 bucks a month to help them to make their lease uh, just till such time that God blesses them and builds them up? And I just ask you, I plant that seed now, and we'll, we'll, we'll keep you informed uh, as we go. But we as a body of Christ, we need to understand that we have a responsibility. And our responsibility is not just to receive all the blessings that God has given to us, but we're called also to be a blessing. Amen? And I pray as we close in prayer now, as we partake of communion, we celebrate what Christ has done for us. I pray that we in this place would recognize, hey, I'm called. Not to be served, but to serve. Mark 10, 45. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. We celebrate with that, that with communion and we're challenged and exhorted by that 